0: The roads out there, good or bad. Man, thank you guys for braving the weather to be here. That was crazy. We came into I came into the 9 the 915 service. Is that what time the first one is? I came for the 9:15 service and uh, there was nothing. And then I walked out and I was like, what happened? So uh, it's great to great to see you guys. If you're on live stream, uh, thanks for joining us that way. Hopefully you're staying warm and safe. And so uh, great to be together this way. I want to say that if you are a guest with us, this is your first time here at the Medina East Campus, uh, whether you're joining us on, online or whether you're in the room, I just want to extend a very, very special welcome to you. Thanks for being our guest. And we hope that you feel uh, welcomed because you are welcome here. And uh, I also want to let you know, if you're a guest, you're actually catching us uh, kind of in the midst of this very long conversation we've been having over the, over the course of the past several weeks uh, in a series that we've been in, in the Book of Acts. And so just to kind of help orient you to the way our church operates, if you are newer to Grace, the way that we approach things is we actually do things through sermon series some of you are familiar with that. If you're not familiar with the sermon series, the sermon series is kind of like, you can actually sort of think of it a little bit like a television series. And so if you guys ever watch a series on Netflix or something like that, you know how it works. There's several episodes that tell one continuous story. And that's kind of how we approach things here at Grace too, is we'll go through a book of the Bible and we will have a series of conversations over, the, over, uh, over a series of weeks that kind of journeys through that book. And so you're catching us in the midst of a very, very long series. And I say that just to let you know that there's been a lot of conversations that we've had in the past that if you wanna catch up on those, and I think it'd actually be very helpful for you to do that, uh, you, can, uh, you can go back and, uh, and listen to any of those previous uh, parts of our, our series on our website, on our app, on our podcast. I would encourage you to do that. That'd be a great way to catch up. But uh, what we've been doing in this series is we've been looking at this incredible book of the Bible. We've been looking at the book of Acts. And uh, the book of Acts, here's what we said. We said it is a really, really unique book in the Bible because it helps us to rediscover some really important things about Christianity. And namely, we said that the book of Acts is gonna help us rediscover three things. It's gonna help us rediscover the message of Jesus. We said that the book of Acts is gonna help us uh, rediscover the mission of Jesus. And then lastly, we said it's gonna help us rediscover the methods of Jesus. And so we've been working our way through these three, uh, kind of these three big topics, and right now we find ourselves talking about the method of Jesus. And so like I said, we've covered a lot so far, but here's the question that we've been seeking to gain clarity on as we've been talking about the method of Jesus. The question is this, what are the methods that Jesus intends to use to accomplish his mission and to proclaim his message in the world today? Okay, so that's the big question we're trying to seek to answer as we look at the book of Acts. What we're saying is, how does Jesus, how does Jesus want to continue his work on this earth today? How does he want to do that? And consequently, how do we put ourselves in a place to be used by God? What are the methods that Jesus desires to use in our lives and through our lives to continue his message and to continue his mission here on this earth? And so that's what we've been talking about. And so we've already had a a couple of conversations over the past few weeks uh, about the method of Jesus. You can catch up on those. But let me just tell you what we're going to talk about today. So today, as we think about the methods of Jesus, I want to talk about one method that I believe we're going to see in the book of Acts, that Jesus desires and continues to use to this day to expand his mission and to proclaim his message. And quite honestly, I'm just gonna let you guys know, this is a method that I don't think many of us uh, often consider. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think this is a method that many of us often desire. But here it is. Here's the method we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about persecution today. And what we're gonna talk about is persecution. Specifically, I wanna talk a little bit about the persecution of Christians. And I believe when you look at the book of Acts, what you're going to see is that persecution is actually one of the methods that Jesus uses to expand his mission and to proclaim his message to this earth. That persecution, even though it's not something we should necessarily pursue, which we'll talk about here in a second, it is something that can be used powerfully by God. So let me just tell you what I'm hoping that you and I are going to come to see and believe by the end of today's talk. Okay, here's what I'm hoping we're going to come to see and believe. that the persecution of Christians, if it's viewed and responded to correctly, is actually something that God can use powerfully. Right, my hope is that by the time we're done talking, that you will come to see and believe that this is true. that persecution, the persecution of, of Christians, if it is handled correctly and if it is viewed correctly and responded to, is something that can be used so powerfully by God. Now, let me tell you why I think this is such a relevant conversation, okay? For those of us who follow Jesus, and I know not everyone in the room today follows Jesus. Some of you are still investigating Christianity. But for those of us who follow Jesus, here's why this is relevant. Because what happens when you begin to follow Christ, like we've been talking about in this series? What happens when you say, I wanna devote myself to making Jesus the Lord of my life and I wanna follow him in all things. And what happens as a result of that when your life starts to change? What happens when your life begins to transform and your priorities start to transform and your conduct starts to change? And what happens when, as a result of that, um, you start to tell people about what Jesus is doing in your life? What happens when you, like last week, you guys were, maybe some, some of you were here last week, what happens when, like Pastor Kevin said, you start to be bold and you start to tell people about Jesus and about the things he's doing in your life. But what happens when, what happens when your devotion and your dedication to Jesus doesn't make your circumstances and your relationships easier? But what happens when your devotion to Jesus sometimes make your circumstances and your relationships more challenging? What happens What because you're devoted to Christ? Relationships now actually start to become tense. What happens in moments like that, you guys. Because here's what I believe: I believe if for those of us who follow Jesus, if we do not have a category for, and if we do not have a theology of persecution, as Jesus says, I think it can set us up for, uh, quite honestly, uh, deep disillusionment, deep discouragement, deep frustration, and maybe even missed opportunities for God to work in and through us. So that's what I wanna talk about here with us today. So what happens, just to get you know more practical, what happens, for example, when? What happens when you live for Jesus among your coworkers or your classmates, but rather than them being drawn to you, you find that they're actually further repelled from you because of that decision to follow Christ? What happens when you boldly proclaim your identity as a follower of Jesus but your friend group you find doesn't support that decision or applaud that decision like we would hear, but what happens when instead you find that they actually resist that and even question it? What happens when your friends look at you and they say, man, we liked you better before you were a follower of Christ? What happens then? What happens when you de- your dedication to Jesus actually starts to cause tension in your family? What if your decision and your devotion to Jesus is something that puts you at odds with your parents because it's not the path that they desired for you? Or what happens when it puts you at odds with your children? Or what happens when it puts you at odds with your spouse? That because of your devotion to Jesus, there's tension that exists in that relationship. What happens when you try to live out your devotion to Jesus and your conduct, right? Maybe at your school or at the party or in your sexuality, right? But instead of being respected for that, You're criticized or you're scrutinized for that. What happens in a situation like that? What happens when your ethical standards as a Christian, as a Christ follower, cause your employer not to be impressed, but instead frustrated or threatened because of your decision to follow Jesus, because of your conduct? What happens in situations? All I'm saying is, we could put more things on the screen, all I'm saying is if we don't have a category and a theology to understand how to respond to these things, I think it can set us up for disillusionment and discouragement and frustration. And you guys, here, here's why this is so relevant. Because I believe, I believe that right now in our society, that followers of Jesus can expect only more and more and more of this kind of thing right now. Um, it's no secret. I think we all know this. There is a growing secularism in our society right now that is pushing faith into the private sphere and it is privatizing it. It's taking it out of the public sphere and it's pushing it into the private sphere. And whenever that happens, one of the results is Christian persecution, is Christian persecution. Now, um, before we keep going, I want you guys to hear me clearly. Please hear me clearly. I am, not, I am not saying any of this with a victim mentality. I am not saying any of this with a spirit of fear. I don't, I don't think that at all. Uh, Nor am I trying to say that if you follow Jesus, that means that all you're gonna experience is hardship and endure persecution and that we're just gonna have to get beat up all the time. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, let me just speak clearly. Following Jesus is the most freeing, the most transforming, and the most life-giving relational pursuit you and I will ever know. And so let me just be clear about that. In fact, can I just say that again? Following Jesus is the most freeing, transforming, and life-giving relational pursuit you and I will ever know it is. Yet at the same time, to ignore the other side of the reality of following Jesus, that following him, that along with that is going to come persecution, is to miss the full picture. So my hope is in the remaining time that we have, that we can actually think together through three things about Christian (coughs) persecution today, three realities that I think might help us understand Christian persecution today. And here they are. I'm just going to tell you what they are, and then I'll show you them in the scripture. So here they are. Number one. I think that we're gonna see that Jesus promised persecution, okay? I believe that followers of Jesus shouldn't be surprised when persecution happens. In fact, I think we can be assured when it shows up. And why is that? Because Jesus promised it, because Jesus uses it. He is one of his methods. I'll show you that here in a minute. And then number three, because Jesus stands. He stands with those who are persecuted. All right, those are the three things. Now, the passage that I wanna take you to is I'm gonna take you to Acts chapter six, so if you got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and join me? Open up uh, to Acts chapter six. And let me just say, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can use a Bible under the chair, page 887. is where you're gonna find Acts chapter six and you can get there. If you don't own a Bible, we say this all the time and we just, we mean it, you can have it. We'd love for you to take that home. We'd love for you to read it on your own. So Acts six is where we're gonna go. And as you guys are finding Acts chapter six, let me just tell you what we're gonna do. We're actually gonna cover uh, kind of three chapters. So it's a lot. We're not gonna read the whole thing but we're gonna cover the end of Acts chapter six, and then I wanna summarize Acts chapter seven. We're gonna look at the end of Acts chapter seven and the beginning of Acts chapter eight, all right? And I think you'll see why as we go through. So let's just start. I'm gonna read this whole section of scripture, and then we'll, we'll come back around to it. So Acts chapter six, starting off in verse eight. Here's what it says. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And now let me just hit pause there for a minute. Some of you have been with us in the series and you might remember that up to this point from Acts chapter one to Acts chapter six, what we have seen so far is the rapid growth of the Christian movement. I mean, Acts Acts chapter one, Acts chapter six, just the explosive growth of the Christian movement. But yet what you also see is that as the movement is growing, so is opposition. And by the time you get to chapter 6, what you're going to see is things are going to get very heated. They're about to get very, very heated. We're told about this guy named Stephen. Stephen is an incredible man, incredible man of God. And the Bible tells us that Stephen is actually put on trial because of some false accusations that were brought against him because of his faith in Jesus. And so they pull him on trial in front of a group of people called the Sanhedrin. And the Bible tells us that he is forced to give an answer. And so they asked him, the high priest asked him, are these charges that are brought against you true? Now, if you just look at your, the Bible you have in front of you, you'll notice that in response to this question, Stephen now is going to launch into the longest recorded speech in the entire book of Acts. So Acts chapter 7 accounts for us the longest speech that we have recorded in the book of Acts. Now, it's gonna tell you, we are not gonna read that whole speech here today uh, for a couple reasons. First, because of time. It would take us a very, very long time to do that. But the second reason is because we actually already preached an entire sermon on that speech. Some of you might remember Colin preached a sermon several weeks ago on that. Uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. It was a phenomenal message that just summarized what Stephen's speech was all about but if I could just summarize it just quickly for us, Stephen's speech is basically about this. It is the gospel. Stephen boldly, and I mean boldly, proclaims the truth about Jesus to this group of people. Now, he does it respectfully, but he does it boldly. But he tells them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do they respond when Stephen preaches the gospel? Well, this is what I wanna zero in on. Look at verse 54, look at verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, the gospel, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth in him. But Stephen, who was full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. He went from house to house, and he dragged off both men and women, and he put them into prison. But those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. All right, so what do we see in this passage? Well, there's a lot, but I hope you notice that one of the major themes that we see in this passage is that of the persecution of of Christians. It was one of the major themes that we see in this passage. And as I said before, I believe that there are three things that we can confidently say about the persecution of Christians when we consider this passage. And those three things are that Jesus promised it, that Jesus uses it, and Jesus stands with the persecuted. So let's talk through those things. Let's think about the first thing. Jesus promised persecution. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, so I was paying attention. Mostly I was reading the passage with you. Um, but I don't, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't think I remember a spot where Jesus showed up and promised that Steve, like he didn't show up and say, hey, Stephen, I promise you, you're going to get persecuted. So where are you seeing that in the passage? Well, let me just say, you don't see it directly. You don't see this directly in this passage. However, I do want to say, I believe that the persecution that Stephen faced would have brought to mind to the disciples that were there, the words of Jesus, it would have brought to mind the words of Jesus. And you're like, what do you mean? Well, some of you know this. Years before this account ever happened, before Jesus was ever crucified, the Bible tells us that Jesus said some things to his disciples in anticipation of persecution. John chapter 15, Jesus said to his disciples, remember what I told you, as a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you too. They're gonna to persecute you also. You can see what Jesus told his disciples. He told his disciples, There's no servant that is greater than his master. And if you follow me, part of following me is that they persecuted me. And if they persecuted me and you're following me, you can expect to be persecuted also. Now, now let me just be clear. Jesus said some other things about following him. Jesus said that in him is life in life to the fullest. Jesus said that in him, he is the way, the truth, and life. And there's no other way to get to God but, but through him. Jesus said that in him is eternal life. Uh, Jesus said that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. That's what he said. And that's all true. That is all true. But the very same Jesus who said those things also said this. He said that, listen, part of following me, he just says, I wanna I want be honest about, the, about what, what is involved in following me. And part of it is that you will be persecuted. If they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you also. Jesus said on another occasion, Matthew 5, to his disciples, he said, blessed, blessed are you. You are blessed. When people insult you, when they persecute you, and when they falsely speak all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus said, We can expect it. Um, but you know, I guess I think sometimes when we think about the persecution of Christians, for many of us, where our mind goes is we tend to think of physical persecution. That's usually what we think of. And I think that's right, I think that's one form of persecution. However, I think if you look carefully at scripture and even if you look carefully at this passage and you look at the book of Acts, I think you're gonna see Christian persecution takes many different forms. It shows up in different ways. I would even say it this way. I think in this passage right here and if you look at the book of Acts, I think you see at least three shades, I'll just call them shades, of the persecution of Christians. Let me just tell you, here's the first one. I think The first one for sure is physical persecution. Absolutely. I think when Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you, And when he says in the same way that they persecuted the prophets, I think that a big part of what Jesus has in mind is physical persecution. Uh, Some of you guys maybe know how the prophets were persecuted. The prophets, many of them were killed because of their faith and their belief in God. Uh, Some of them were beaten or they were were physically harmed because of that. Uh, Jesus, you guys know this, Jesus experienced physical persecution. Uh, Jesus was beaten, he was flogged, he was crucified, he experienced that. Stephen, we just saw it. Stephen experienced physical persecution. He was the first Christian martyr, the very first person who died because of his belief in Jesus Christ. But you guys, I want you to understand that physical persecution isn't just something that happened back then. Physical persecution is something that has continued throughout the centuries. Some of you guys maybe have heard of a book called uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is a really incredible book that actually kind of catalogs for us uh, several centuries of of, uh, physical persecution and those who have given their life for Christ. Uh, It's an incredible book, and I would encourage you to read it. You just see the physical persecution of God's people. Um, But I think it's also important that we understand that, you guys, physical persecution continues to this very day. It continues to this very day. Now, we might not see it directly in our culture right now. I don't know if any of us in this room have ever experienced physical persecution. Maybe you have. I I know I haven't experienced physical persecution for my faith in Jesus Christ. But listen, to say that physical persecution to those who follow Jesus doesn't still happen today would be to turn a blind eye to what is happening globally in Christianity. Uh, I thought this was so interesting. Maybe you guys have heard this before. There's a group called Open Door USA, and they pointed out that in 2021, just a couple of years ago, 360 million Christians lived in countries where persecution was significant. That included physical persecution. Uh, roughly 5,600 Christians were murdered. They were killed because of their because of their faith in Jesus Christ. More than 6,000 were detained or put in prison. 4,000 were kidnapped. More than 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were destroyed globally. And so, you guys, I think we need to remember that these Christians that around the globe, these are for those of us who follow Jesus. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that means that, man, we should be praying for those who are being physically, these are things you're not going to see on mainstream media. They're not going to point these things out. But this is the reality of what's happening in Christianity globally, and we should be praying for them. However, I think it's also important that we know that this is not the only kind of persecution. It's not. Because look what Jesus also says. I think he points out another form. Yeah, there's physical persecution, but I think there's also verbal persecution. Look what Jesus says. Blessed are you when people insult you, they persecute you, and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Falsely speak all kinds of evil against you. And what's he talking about there? you guys? I think that's a verbal form of persecution. It's false accusations that are based on exaggerations or caricatures that are intended to destroy the reputation of Christians. That's what it is. It's false accusations. It's false labels that are put on people who follow... Christ. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but do you notice how this whole thing with Stephen started? Did you notice how this whole this whole Stephen being stoned to death, how that whole thing began? It actually all started with false accusations. That's how it started. because what it says in, in chapter 6. It says that they, the Sanhedrin, secretly persuaded some men to say some stuff about Stephen. So they started to accuse him of things. They stirred up the people. They started to stir up the crowd. And then they produced false witnesses they, they, they literally grabbed people to say things that were not true about Stephen, that were labels that were based on misunderstandings, and they were accusations against against Stephen that weren't entirely true. And you guys, I want you to know that even though we see this here with Stephen, this has continued to be a consistent theme throughout history. In each time, in each culture in history, Christians have been falsely accused They have been wrongly caricatured, and they have been wrongly labeled in one way or another. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. Do you guys know this? This kind of blew me away. Did you know at one point in history, Christians were actually accused, and they were given the label of being cannibals? Do you know that? So people were like, those Christians, they're cannibals. That was the, the label. Now, it was a false accusation. It was a false label. But do you guys know what it was based on? It was based on our belief of communion, and so they would hear Christians say that we're gonna take the body and drink the blood of Christ, and they said, well, you see, those Christians are cannibals. It's a gross exaggeration, it's a misunderstanding, it's a false accusation, but it's a label that's put on Christians to destroy their reputation. Do you guys know this? Did you know at one point in history, Christians were actually accused of incest? There was a point when the culture would call Christians, they'd basically say, those guys, they do weird incest stuff. And you know where that came from? It came from um, a misunderstanding and from a wrong accusation because Christians call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Christians would say, hey, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. And then brothers and sisters in Christ were getting married and people were like, that's weird and freaky. And so those guys are like, they're practicing incense. But it was a false accusation that was intended to defame the reputation of those who followed Jesus. And you guys, I I think because Jesus said it, I think we can expect that the same is going to happen to those who follow Jesus today. There are going to be false accusations. Uh, there's a book um, recently that came out that's called Good Faith by David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. And basically they did a survey of the public perception of Christians in our country today. And do you guys know what the two most common words in our society right now are used to describe Christians? Two most common words. Here they are right here. Uh, irrelevant and extreme. Irrelevant and extreme. Irrelevant meaning unimportant, insignificant, and unhelpful. And extreme meaning that it borders on the dangerous, something that's ideologically harmful or potentially toxic to society. These are the terms that are used. And so listen, Christians today, I don't think we're going to be labeled as cannibals. I don't think we're going to be accused of incest, not today. But listen, we will be called bigots. We will be given that label. Uh, Christians will be given the label of closed-minded. And, and why is that? Well, it, it's it's because of of our it, that we adhere to the exclusive claims about Jesus that these labels will be put on us, but they're not true. They're false accusations. They're false. Christians will be called homophobic because of Jesus's teachings about Christianity and because of sexuality. Th- those things are going to be woven in. These are these are labels. They're going to be put upon those who follow Jesus today. And you guys, I think that those labels that we see, sometimes what they are is they are false accusations that are intended to illegitimize the message of Christianity. And so I think you're going to see that. But I also think in this passage, along those same lines, along those same lines, I think we see physical persecution, verbal persecution. But if I could add another category, I think the best way to say this, I don't know the best way to say this. I think there's also emotional persecution. There's emotional persecution. Now, what do I mean by that? Look what Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you because of me, when people insult you. Um, you know, this word that Jesus uses here is actually, it is a very, very, very strong word. When he says insult you, it means way more than just someone kidding you or someone, you know, just someone giving you a tough time or, or someone who's just, you know, teasing you. That's, that's not what it means. Uh, the word literally is translated revile. Some of you have passages, blessed are you when people revile you. It means to heap insults, it means to defame, it means to disparage, to reproach, it means to assail with abusive words. That's what it literally means. I think this is more than a false accusation or a misunderstood caricature. I think this is a serious insult that is intended to hurt or degrade a person's dignity. I think that's what it is. And oftentimes, this comes from a place of hostility. Uh, Some of you who are followers of Jesus here, you've experienced this, where just because you're a follower of Christ, there are there are um, insults that are intended to degrade you, that are directed at you simply because you're a follower of Jesus. I think I told you guys this story I, a few years ago. I was, a, I was a member at this gym and there was this guy that was there and I was totally fine until he found out that I was a Christian. And I'm not even quite sure how he found out I was a Christ follower. I don't remember if I said something when we were talking or if he just found it out through someone else at the gym, but I'm telling you, the moment he found out I was a Christian, it's like there was a target on my back and this guy was just—I mean—he was just hostile. Only he didn't know anything about me except that I was a follower of Jesus. And I remember at first I thought he was kidding. I just thought he was joking, because I, I went to the gym and he's like, "Hey, what's up, Jesus boy?" And I was like, "What's up, you know, <laughs> gym boy? I don't know. I don't know. How, how are you?" And but he just—he was so—he was so angry. And I just remember he would come in. And he'd be like, "Hey," he would seek me out. Jesus loving you today, Jesus boy. And I'd be like, uh, yeah, he is, He's and, and you too. You know, he's loving you too. And I would just try to, you know, bear with this guy. But I'm telling you, it was like, it was every time I went in there, this guy would come and find me and he would he would purposely try to say something that was the most vulgar or offensive thing that he could come up with because, and, and then I'll just be honest with you, a lot of time, most of the time, I was just able to kind of shrug it off or whatever. But there was a few times I remember just being like, man, I don't even want to deal with this guy. Like, I'm so frustrated. I'm going to, like, I'm, I'm so tempted to throw a weight at his head. And, like, and I'm like, and that's not very Christ like, you know? So, um, but that's going to happen sometimes to those, to those of us who follow Jesus. These insults are going to happen. And you guys, I think this, I actually think you see this a little bit with Stephen, don't you? So, Stephen, he, he proclaims the truth about Jesus, and what's their response? Oh, their response isn't just disagreement. No, the Bible says they're furious. And they gnash their teeth at him. I don't even know what that means, to gnash their teeth at somebody. But they're furious with him. Do you guys know that the word furious in the original language, it literally means this. It means to be cut to the quick. Have you guys ever had that happen before where you're cutting your nails and you get cut to the quick? And you're like, and it just, man, it just causes you to recoil. And did you ever have that happen? I think it's really interesting, you guys. The Bible says in Acts 2 that the preaching of the gospel cuts people to the heart and they repent, and they're baptized. But here in Acts 6, that very same gospel, it doesn't cut people to the heart, it cuts them to the quick. And you guys, I think that if we stand for, and if we follow Jesus, the gospel is going to produce both. It's gonna cut some to the heart, and it's gonna cut some to the quick. Now, before we go on, I think at this point, I need to vocalize something that many of you, no doubt, are probably thinking at this point, because it's something that I was thinking, and so I just want to, I think that we have to acknowledge this. There are illegitimate forms of Christian persecution. I think it's really important that we acknowledge this, all right? In other words, what I mean is this. You guys, let's just be honest. Sometimes, some of the labels and some of the accusations that is put against Christians, sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes, let's just be honest, sometimes the, those, those, those uh, labels that are put on Christians, sometimes we deserve those labels because we've earned them. I think it's important that we keep in mind what Jesus said. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me, is what Jesus says. Because of me, right? Because you follow me, because you act like me, because you look like me, because you identify with me. And you guys, I think we gotta be honest. Sometimes Christians experience insults and persecution not because of him. Sometimes we do it because we're jerks. Sometimes we experience insults uh, because, uh, because we're being insensitive or we're being disrespectful. And sometimes it's the case. And so listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you can hear me. And I just wanna say this, I love you and I wanna say with all, all the love of my heart, I love us, I love us, I love you, but there is a way that we can present our faith to the world around us that does more harm to Christianity. There is a way. There's a way we conduct ourselves on social media. There is a tone that we take There is a manner in which we share that that can actually do harm that I don't think is what Jesus is talking about. And you guys, sometimes sometimes what we call Christian persecution is actually just a natural human resistance to a lack of kindness and understanding. And so I think, you guys, I think this is why we need community. I think this is why we need each other because I think we need to hold each other accountable to what Kevin talked about last week. You guys remember what Kevin said? We should be bold. We should be bold. We should be bold about declaring Jesus, but we have to do it with gentleness and respect. We have to, we absolutely have to. And can I just say, if you're a person who's investigating Jesus here today and you have been on the receiving end of some cringy, disrespectful, hurtful, and harmful attempts of evangelism, can I just say I'm sorry for that? I just damn. I think sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes that's not the kind of persecution that Jesus is talking about. However, I think we also have to acknowledge that for those of us who follow Christ, the reality is, is that if we are trying to live for him, persecution is inevitable. This is what it says in 2 in Timothy. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. If you wanna live a godly life, listen, expect it. It's coming, it's coming, it's gonna happen. And so because of that, can I just tell you guys what I think this means? For those of us who follow Jesus, I think it means two things at the same time. It means that if we are living and we are speaking as we should, as followers of Christ, It means that some people who are non-believers should be attracted to that. And it also means that others are going to persecute us for it. I think it means both. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and your devotion and your life for Christ only leads to resistance in people who are pushing back against you, and that's it, you guys, I think that maybe that's saying that maybe we're not living and speaking as we should. At the same time, if your life for to if you're if you're if your life for God, if your devotion to Jesus never leads to these things, persecution or insults or if it never leads to those things, well man, I think that maybe that's an indication that we're not living and speaking as we ought to either. Because both are something that Jesus explains to us. And so, so first and foremost, Jesus promised it. But I don't know about you guys. Um, that's that's not enough for me to uh, be eager (laughs) about just knowing that it's coming isn't sometimes enough. I think I need to know what's the purpose. And I actually think this leads us to the second thing, and that's that Jesus uses persecution. He uses it. I want you to notice how chapter 8 opens up. I think this is amazing. It says, A Saul, he approved of the killing of Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church and he went from house to house and he dragged him into prison. Um, You know, I want you guys to think about this with me for a second. I think sometimes because this happened so long ago, it's hard for us to appreciate how terrifying this must have been for the early Christians. I just want you to put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Can you guys imagine this? Up to this point, all they've seen is the rapid expansion of the Christian movement. Sure, there's been some opposition, but God has saved them every step of the way. But now for the very first time, one of their own is killed because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And now Saul is on the loose and he's arresting Christians and he's throwing them in prison. Can you guys imagine? Can you imagine how scary that must have been? Can you imagine for that church how disillusioning that could have been for them? Can you imagine? Can you Just imagine with me for a minute if that happened at our church. Imagine if this week we found out that one of our life group leaders, that they were arrested and they were beaten because of their faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder, What would happen next week at church? How many of us would come? I mean, can you imagine just the the fear, the trepidation? I mean, it would come. But what's interesting to me is that even in the midst of such an uncertain time, the Bible gives us an incredible insight right here in this passage, an incredible insight. And I wanna show it to you. You probably see it right here. The Bible says there was a great persecution. But look what the Bible says. They were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. You guys, I think that the author is so intentional in telling us that in the midst of all of this, that the gospel is moving to Judea and Samaria. Now, why is that important? Some of you know why that's important. This is, this is intended to cause us to think back to something that Jesus said. And what did Jesus say? At the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, Jesus promised this. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, into the ends of the earth. You see, you guys, chapters one to seven in the book of Acts are all in Jerusalem. Acts chapter one to Acts chapter seven, it's all in Jerusalem. This is the first time now that you're gonna see the gospel move into Judea and Samaria. Do you guys see the connection? What it's telling us is that God is using this great persecution to advance his plan, just like he said he would. God can use persecution. I love, uh, Pastor Steve actually told me this week, I think this was really good. Pastor Steve actually said something to me this week. He said, the reason that Acts 8.1 uh, happened is because of Acts 1.8. The reason that we have Acts 8.1 Acts is because of Acts 1.8. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. You can see God using Christian persecution to advance his plan. And you guys, this is true all throughout the book of Acts. And can I just say, this is true all throughout history. Um, You guys maybe heard a name of a guy by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian was a a, a second century uh, theologian. He said this. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to the dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's a very, very famous quote. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now you might be asking, what exactly does that mean? here's what it means. It means that the persecution of Christians, the persecution of those who follow Jesus, it's like throwing water on a grease fire. It only causes the, the fire to expand further and to burn hotter. And that has been true throughout history. The same thing is true. And you guys, now I don't think that means, let me just be clear, I don't think that means that those of us who follow Jesus should go out and seek persecution. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying homework this week is go out and pick a fight with somebody and uh, let God use them. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what we should do. But what I am saying is that the persecution of Christians, if viewed and responded to correctly, is something that God can use powerfully? To which some of you might say, Well, what does it mean to respond correctly? How do you respond correctly? Well, there's so much to say on this, but can I say that I think that Stephen himself is a great example of how we respond to persecution, verbal, emotional, and physical. And how does he respond? Well, I think there's great indication in the text of how Stephen responds. First off, did you guys notice Stephen's disposition? It actually tells us his countenance. Did you notice this? It's kind of weird. Look what it says in in chapter 6, verse 15. All who were in the Sanhedrin looked at Stephen intently, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I remember when I read that uh, over the last couple of weeks, I remember being like, what does that even mean? That is so weird. It almost sounds like a cheesy pickup line. You know, like, you have a face of an angel. And I was like, that's so weird that that's in there. Uh, But the more I thought about it, I thought it was interesting. One commentator actually pointed, I'm still not quite sure what it means, but one commentator actually said, I thought it was interesting. He said, we know this. He said, it it at least means this. It means that whatever Stephen was about to say, that he didn't say it out of a vengeful, spiteful, defensive, accusatory, or derogatory place. His face was like an angel. His face was like an angel. He didn't say this out of vengeance. Stephen said some bold things. Man, he did but he didn't do it in a spiteful way. He did it with the countenance of an angel, which is interesting because if you compare that with the countenance of his accusers, what did they look like? Well, the Bible says that they were gnashing their teeth at him, which I still am not quite sure what that looks like, but they're just gnashing, they're furious. But yet you see Stephen doesn't repay that kind of evil for the kind of evil he's receiving. Uh, What about them? The Bible says that they're stoning him. They are physically throwing rocks at him to kill him. But what's Stephen's response? Does Stephen pick up stones and throw back? Is that his response? Does he repay blow for blow? Now, how does Stephen respond? While they're stoning him, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Listen, let me ask you guys a question. Does that remind you of anybody else? It's supposed to. It's supposed to remind you of somebody else. Who else in the face of physical persecution prayed for those who are physically persecuting him, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Who else was it that didn't repay insult for insult, but instead blessing and prayed? And Stephen responded like Jesus, that's how he responded. And you guys, my hope is that we see this, that the persecute, if, if we respond to this correctly with Christ-likeness, it can be used powerfully by God. Can I just say, some of you are experiencing persecution right now some type or another because of your faith in Christ. And can I just breathe life into you? Because it can be exhausting. So let me just breathe life into you and say, you guys, I think one of the greatest opportunities for Jesus Christ to be displayed in and through you and is how we respond to persecution. We can speak boldly. We can speak clearly. We can do those things, absolutely. But with gentleness and respect and Christ-likeness in our hearts, Jesus can shine through us and he can use it powerfully. Because that leads me to the last thing. And honestly, I think of all of them, this is probably the very best of them all, is that Jesus stands with the persecuted. Followers of Jesus shouldn't be surprised when we face persecution for him. I think we can be assured, and why is it? Because Jesus stands with the persecuted. Can I tell you something that really captivated me? Uh, When I I first was reading this passage several months ago, and there was something that captured my attention, and I didn't look into it until this last week. But what captured my attention was something that happens in verse 55. Stephen, while he's being stoned, they're throwing stones at him, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He looks up to heaven and the Bible says he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he actually says, look, I see heaven open. And the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Now, that's amazing. I can't even I can't even fathom what he was seeing in that moment. And while this is happening, heaven is open and he sees Jesus. But here's what captivated me the most. Is in this passage, do you guys notice that it says that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God? He's standing at the right hand of God. Now here's why I thought that was interesting. I thought, you know, it's interesting. Um, in the Bible, it's going to say that Jesus is at the right hand of God all the time. It's going to say that he's, he's at the right hand of God. He's, you know, he's, he's seated in a place of authority. But I thought to myself, I thought, you know, most of the time in the Bible, when Jesus is at the right hand of God, I think I remember that he's always sitting. He's always sit, like, seated at the right hand of God. That's interesting. The Bible says he's standing here. I thought that was really weird. And so I, I decided to look into it. So I looked into it this week. And let me show you what I found just on my study. Did you know that four times in the New Testament, Jesus is just at the right hand of God? He says that he's at the right hand in a place of authority, and a place of uh, sovereignty. He's at the right hand of God. Ten times, at least, I mean, that's my count. He's seated at the right hand of God. Only twice in the entire New Testament is Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And it's right here in Acts chapter 7. Now, why is that important? Well, I've been thinking a lot about it. You know what I think? And again, I'm speculating, but I think maybe part of what this means is it's trying to tell us something. I think it's telling us, first off, that Jesus doesn't turn a blind eye to the persecution of his people. He doesn't. I think what it means is that he is sovereign over the persecution of his people. But I think it means something else, you guys. I think it means that Jesus stands. He stands for and he stands with those who are persecuted for his name. This might sound like a really silly analogy to some of you, but this is the picture that came into my mind. Do you guys ever have it? Maybe for some of you have kids, and do you ever go to one of their sporting events? Or maybe you don't have kids, but you have a nephew, or maybe you you know you remember this when your parents came to your game. Do you ever go to like a sporting event though? Like and maybe let's say it's your son's playing football or something like that. And most of the game, what are you doing? You're sitting. You're watching the game. You're cheering. You know, you're you're booing at certain things. You're yelling at the ref, depending on what kind of parent you are. Right, and all that's happening. But every once in a while, your boy gets the ball, and he breaks out, and he starts making he starts making a beeline for the end zone. And what are you doing as a parent? Well, you're on your feet now. You're on your feet, and you're you're cheering him. You're, maybe you're running on down the sideline. Let's go! Let's go! Let's go! Right? That's what you're doing. You guys, what is it that makes the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ stand to his feet? Jesus stands with those who stand for him. I imagine it this way. Probably didn't happen this way, but I imagine it. I imagine Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's watching the affairs of the church, happy, sovereign over it all, and he sees Stephen, and they're falsely accusing him. And my guess is that that the Lord is going, look, look, they're accusing him. We knew this would happen, they're accusing him. And then they watch Stephen and he's saying, What's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? And he sees Stephen break the tackle. And Stephen, rather than responding to them out of hatred, instead he responds with boldness, he was with wisdom. He's like, All right, let's go, let's go, let's go. And then he sees he sees Stephen, he's on trial now. He's on trial. And Jesus is like, I know what that's like, and he's watching it, and Stephen's on trial. And what's he gonna do? They're asking him to give a response. And Stephen's bold, man. He preaches the gospel. And I imagine Jesus is like, at a boy, you're doing it. And then I imagine this. I imagine they start picking up rocks. And I imagine Jesus is like, oh no, oh no, oh no. And they start to stone him. And then, and then Stephen prays, Father, forgive him. And I imagine at this point Jesus is on his feet and he's going, that, That's my boy. That's my boy. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Jesus stands with those who will stand with him. You guys, this is what Jesus said. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the son of man will acknowledge before the angels of God. You know what I think is so crazy, you guys? Do you guys remember what happens in Acts 9? Jesus goes to Saul you know, Saul, the one who is responsible for all this persecution, Jesus pays a visit to Saul. And you guys remember what he says to him? You remember what his opening line to Saul is? He goes, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting Stephen? Why are you persecuting my church? He says, no, 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 no. I stand with those who stand for me. And you guys, I think that this helps us understand if we can reason this way, I believe that we can find ourselves in a place where we can be assured when we face persecution, because Jesus promised it. He uses it, and He stands with those who are persecuted. Mess the band to come up, and as they do, you guys, I just want to end with a couple of passages, and then we're going to sing. We're going to sing some songs that I really believe uh, for many of us are just an anthem and a prayer. I would want them to be an anthem and a prayer to you. But I think when we start to understand these three things, when we start to. View persecution correctly, I think when we start to respond to it correctly, we can start to reason like the early church did. And how did they reason? Well, the Bible says after experiencing imprisonment, that they went away rejoicing. Why? Because they counted it worthy, they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. I love it the way uh, Peter says it, First Peter chapter four. Dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. At the fiery ordeal that's come upon you, Jesus promised it was gonna happen. Don't be surprised. As if something strange is happening, but you can rejoice. Why? Because you get to participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of, not because you're a jerk. However, if you suffer because, because you're a Christian, because you follow Jesus, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I pray that you would change our hearts and I pray that you change our perspective on what it means to be insulted, to be persecuted, to be verbally, emotionally, or even physically persecuted. Father, we don't seek it. We don't necessarily want it. But at the same time, we recognize that you promised it, that you use it, and that when we find ourselves in it, that you stand with us. So God, I just wanna pray for anyone in this room right now who's maybe experiencing one level or another of maybe this kind of opposition in their life because of their faith. I pray you'd strengthen them. I pray, Father, that you would encourage them just to help them, give them a fresh vision for what you can do in and through them because of it. And Father, we also just wanna lift up to you right now our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing physical persecution, who are are, uh, literally fearing for their life because uh, of their commitment to you. God, we stand with them just like you stand with them. And we ask that you would give them the comfort and give them the, the wisdom and give them the strength that they need to be faithful to you. And so, Father, as we sing these songs, I pray that they would be anthems and prayers of our hearts, that you're with us and that you stand with us when we stand with you. I pray in Jesus' name.